Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Obey everything your teachers teach you, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Like the warning, do not judge, this beautiful admonition is often abused to lessen the burden of our accountability as disciples. We do not want to be corrected, so we say, who are you to judge? Likewise, we do not like the pressure a teacher places on us, so we complain about the teacher's example. Why should I listen to someone who can't follow their own advice? But for those who submit to the biblical God, both questions are wicked and betray a latent disrespect for the Lord's authority. The admonition, do not judge, is not for everyone. It's for you. So too, the instruction relayed by a teacher and the pressure placed on you are a gift to you. The teacher is just the courier. If a letter from Almighty God, dear you, you may not become a mailman, is carried to you by a mailman, would you tell God, but he's a mailman? Yes, you would. And that's your problem. You could learn a thing or two from the Gentile sailors in Jonah. Richard and I discuss Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 215 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We talked a lot about Jonah last week, reflecting on the positive aspects of the Gentiles in the story, despite the fact that they were as accountable as Jonah to the judgment of the word, and this very interesting dilemma where the one who is commissioned to bring the teaching is de facto a hypocrite because Jonah is saying one thing but doing another. And what was interesting, and this is something that is very important to emphasize in the biblical school, that it's what Jonah says that has integrity, not what he does. The reason people have difficulty with this teaching is because we as human beings naturally abhor hypocrisy. But it's easy to abhor something without seeing it in yourself. And scripture is pushing this question always to the maximum limit to force us to realize that ultimately everyone truly is a hypocrite because no one can do what scripture requires. Everyone falls short. And any other perspective on that question, any other point of view, any counter argument to scripture's extreme push against our self-righteousness 
in the eyes of Scripture, exemplifies our self-righteousness. We hate most in others what we fear most in ourselves. Scripture confronts us with our sin. There are two ways we can address that. We can either embrace it, asking for mercy, or we can reject it and try to claim our own righteousness. As Scripture continues to confront us with this, we have to continue to fight for our own righteousness, our self-righteousness, to keep our ego intact. So what do we do? Then we see in others and then hate in others what we fear most in ourselves. So as scripture confronts us with sin, there are two options the human being is going to take. The human being is either going to recognize their own sin or they're going to fight against their enemy in order to prove themselves right. The lesser matters of the law as contrasted with the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus refers to them in the Gospel of Matthew. The lesser matters of the law, those regulations were given in the story to characters in the story in order to cause them to stumble so that their priorities would be corrected. I want to be clear about this. In order to work, to serve, and to submit to the weightier matters of the law, you have to first realize that you're not righteous. And that's why the tree is set up in the garden in Genesis. It's a setup. It's entrapment. Don't worry about ethics and whether or not God was fair. God is not fair. Can we just settle that? God caused Adam to stumble because in Genesis, it's a metaphor for the law which causes us to stumble so that we would realize that we don't cut it we fall short and since we fall short we become dependent on God for mercy and we become malleable in his hands and we can be put to good use in the service of the weightier matters of the law when you stop acting from a position of self-righteousness your lenses clear up and you no longer are defending yourself as you were saying Richard but you're now capable of seeing the situation of other people around you and not only how your sin contributes to their suffering, but how the suffering is there, even recognizing other people's needs. It's a discipline to show empathy. It's a discipline to think about things from the perspective of the other's experience. It's really sickening how we emphasize our own experience in this culture when humility is not about your own experience. Humility is about being able to step outside of a situation and see it factually. Well, how can you see anything factually if your premise is self-righteousness and your own value? Again, the law is like the tree in the garden. It is put there to cause you to stumble so that your frame of mind would be correct with respect to the things that pertain to God. The opposite of self-righteousness is humility. And scripture gives us abundant ways to remain humble by recognizing at every turn we are not, shall not be, and cannot be righteous. And once we admit that reality, that according to this teaching we are not righteous, then that instills humility, that breaks down our own ego, so then we can at least see problems beyond the end of our nose. That's all it means, is that you can go and start understanding other people and see the suffering of others and see the problems of other people. And because you're no longer self-righteous, you're no longer taking yourself as the beginning and end of everything. 
it's not correct to beat yourself up. Now, on the podcast, we do our best to relay the teaching of the Bible or to clarify it for our listeners. And it's a very harsh teaching. It undermines our position. It's constantly critical. But at the same time, for us, it's joyous, even though it's bad news, because the realization that you cannot become righteous of your own accord should come as a relief to you. This isn't about saying how terrible you are and beating your breast. That is not the point of this teaching. The point, again, is that upon realization of your inadequacy, you would change the way you interact with others because there isn't anyone on this podcast that doesn't have a bone to pick with someone. Now, are you setting a bar higher for your neighbor than you set for yourself? If you're self-righteous, you'll say no, because I do all of these things. Well, usually when people talk that way, they have blinders on and they don't see the one thing that's needful that they're not doing or the one destructive behavior that they're engaged in that's causing more harm than they could have possibly imagined. So again, at the end of the day, scripture is about producing honesty in us with respect to our own behaviors and with respect to our stance before Almighty God so that we would change our attitude and our behavior towards others. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. What I find interesting about verse 11, Richard, is they bothered to ask, If you were on the Titanic... And someone told you, throw this one person overboard and everything will be fine. Would you ask that person what they want you to do? Or would you throw them overboard? The fact that he said that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land, just him testifying to that fact was enough for them to offer respect to him and to listen to what he has to say. Again, it's what we talked about last week, right? That these Gentiles, these untaught people are behaving correctly. What I appreciate about these Gentiles is that they're willing to listen and try things out in spite of their being untaught. That's what I like about it. It's like when I talk to teenagers and they say, oh, you know, I can't get along with people. There's so many cliques at my school and nobody wants to talk to each other. And I say, well, you know, the secret to that is you just say hello to everybody. And they say, eh, what do you know? You're not a teenager. And I say, let me tell you something. There's one thing that we have in common and one thing that distinguishes between us. The one thing we have in common is that we've both been teenagers. The one thing that I have that you don't is that I'm no longer a teenager. I say, try it out and tell me if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, come back. We'll think of something else. But they aren't interested in trying. The interesting thing about these guys is he says one thing to them. They're like, we got nothing to lose. We're going to try it. And this is such an important point. They got nothing to lose, so they try it. They're about ready to die. What's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to drown? They're already about to drown. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. So this is nice and very generous of him. He's like, eh, throw me over. He obviously is taking a different tack than he did in the beginning. At first he said, okay, I'm going to try to avoid God. Then he finds himself in the middle of the sea, and it seems that God has found him. And at this point, Jonah says, all right, if I got to face God, I'll face God. 
and kindly at least, if not humbly, he's willing to allay these poor Gentiles suffering and face his God on his own. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So this is perfect because they didn't want to throw him overboard automatically. They asked him, what should we do? He said, throw me overboard. So he was being, I guess, gracious in a way. And they still didn't want to throw him over. So they're risking their life rather than throw him into the sea. Talk about being between a rock and a hard place. Here's this guy who comes from the Lord, the master, the creator of the heavens and the earth. What's going to happen if they do something to his representative? Now, what if that representative says the only way you can be safe is if you destroy me? They're really in a pickle. Now, in the second part of verse 13, the harder they rode to try to save the guy, the stormier it began. And the word here again is the preposition al. So remember, the Lord set out to go against Nineveh in the beginning of the book, and now he's going against these gentlemen who are trying to do an act of mercy toward the Lord's prophet. Anyone looking at this from a human perspective would say that God is being inhumane. And the answer is yes, he is being inhumane because he can do whatever he wants in the Bible. He's God. It doesn't have to make sense to you. Don't cry foul and talk about the problem with the God of the Old Testament and is this fair? They're trying to do the right thing. Why is God making it stormier? Because that's what he wants to do. Your problem, and I'm going to call you Job if you continue with this line of questioning, your problem is not to figure out why God is creating adversity and whether or not I or they deserve it. Your point is to accept it and to submit and to try to obey the teaching of God. And here's the pickle that the Gentiles find themselves in. On the one hand, they have this human being who is the emissary of this great deity whom they'd like to protect. Then they have the word that came from this man that goes against the person of the prophet. So they can either go with the man and protect him or they can follow the word and protect the word and destroy the man. They can't do both. So do they go with the man who gives them the word, or do they go with the word itself? They tried to go with the guy. They tried to preserve the man. They're even trying to be nice about They're it. They're trying to be as good as they can. Maybe we can do both somehow. No. The God of the heavens and the earth is making it so they cannot protect the man. They must follow the word. And so now this bind has got them to a point where they have to follow the word. If any of our listeners are considering joining the ministry, whether it be as a priest or a pastor or a minister, whatever terminology your tradition uses, this book presents the best way to frame your service to the community because you are the hypocritical prophet. You have to speak with authority. You can't mumble. You have to be ready to be thrown off the boat. And you have to realize that people are going to try to help you and actually be hurting themselves and causing more headaches for the teaching, even if it benefits you. I mean, it's all there, Richard. It's all there in this text. This is exactly how life works when you set out to preach scripture. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, 
for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Again, it's just a beautiful verse. It all comes together so nicely in Jonah because they're confessing that they're consigned to sin and they're asking that it not be put on them. And at the same time, they're submitting and saying, it's your will, Lord, you do whatever you want to do. This is humility. It's not killing as a sin. Let me go talk to my ethics professor about how God could make me kill. It's like lectures people give on the sacrifice of Isaac. I've seen people spend two hours talking about whether or not it was ethical for God to command that the prophet slay his son. This to me is idiotic. It's not idiotic because in life it's not a question. Obviously in everyday life we consider somebody mentally ill for talking this way. Or at least just wicked and abusive. But we're not talking about everyday life. We're talking about a literary metaphor in a story that's meant to present you with the reality that is counter to what you consider your reality. It's undermining you at every turn. So please don't read this and say, since God is this way, then it must mean that this is ethical. No, you have no right. You're not God. What I will say, though, again, about teaching is that sometimes you have to tell people to row upstream knowing that they're not going to hit the destination and that becomes the didactic mechanism of scripture. It reminds me of Simon of Cyrene who because of the forces beyond his control was forced to carry Jesus's cross for him to be nailed on. Now we have these poor Gentile sailors who because of forces beyond their control are forced to bring this prophet in their midst to his demise. It sometimes requires these forces beyond one's control to force us to admit God's sovereignty that as he desires, so he does. Now, this phraseology is co-opted later in Matthew. Do not put innocent blood on us. What's interesting is that here it functions to demonstrate their correct attitude about their situation. Again, they are culpable for the death of this man. They're not gloating. They're throwing themselves at the feet of the Lord and committing themselves to his good pleasure. In the New Testament, when the people say his blood be on us and on our children, they're saying, do whatever. We don't care. We want blood. Now, I've heard people try to theologize this, that, oh, they're being cleansed with the blood. No, that's not what the text says. The text says there's an angry mob who want blood from Jesus and are willing to see it happen even if the blood is on their heads. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and suddenly their problem was solved. They had to make their final decision between the word and between the man. They went with the word, and lo and behold, God ceased to work against them. Then, in verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's interesting, as you just pointed out, that once they made this decision to commit themselves to the will of God and to his teaching, even though it meant exposing themselves, even though it put them in a compromised position, once they made that decision, and they cast their self-righteousness out the window. Then suddenly in verse 16, we hear that they feared the Lord and offered 
sacrifice to him. Yeah, it's surprising that the author would say at this point is when they feared, because obviously they feared the Lord before as soon as Jonah opened his mouth. But the fact that they saw this happen, they saw that this indeed is the God who's controlling the heavens and the earth is when this great fear comes upon him. But even more so, like you said, Father, it's not their self-righteousness. It's not their egos that are the reference point. It's God as the reference point, and so they offer sacrifices to the Lord, making the Lord the centerpiece of the actions that they're taking. I think I can contextualize verse 16 if we just go back a little bit, because they were still, in verse 13, rowing desperately against the will of God. So they feared him, but a little bit of Jonah's sin rubbed off on them. Jonah obviously on some level has some familiarity with the will of God, or he couldn't teach it even though he wasn't doing it. So in this sense, a little bit of his sin rubbed off on them, although I would say their sin is much less than that of Jonah. But by verse 16, they're not asking the question anymore. They threw him overboard. And I think the writer is consolidating that point. Well, when the question is between, do you preserve the man or do you preserve the word? When they saw what happened when they preserved the word, in spite of the man who brought them the word, this is when they were all in with the Lord because they realized the power of the Lord's word is even stronger than the one who brings it. The word the prophet bears is more important than the prophet. And this is what's so important. This is how we understand the resurrection. Jesus's life, Jesus's death are meaningless without that teaching that he brings. And the resurrection shows that the teaching is going to continue even when the one who brings it dies or even later on, we find in Acts, even when he ascends into heaven, that's when the word continues out. Because the word is not bound by a person. It isn't a person who then gets the word. Once that person goes, the word goes with them. No, the word continues beyond the person. This is what they have to fear. This is what the Gentile mariners have to fear. This is why Paul can be clad as a beggar, but talk down to a Roman paterfamilias. This is why Jeremiah could be a teenager and speak with authority. This is why Jonah could be a hypocrite and speak with authority, because it's not his authority. Let me ask a question of everyone. If someone brings a government notice, a threatening government notice, let's say, do you waste any time trying to figure out whether or not the one delivering the notice is a good man? Well, my mailman, he's a big idiot. Why do I have to believe anything he brings me? Because if you don't pay attention to the mail from the government, you could end up in hot water. Scripture is a piece of mail from the kingdom. What does it matter to you what the mailman looks like or whether he's a good man or not? All these hang-ups in church life about the integrity of the pastor are sinful. It's better for you if your pastor's a sinner. It's better for you if he's arrogant. Was Jonah humble? I don't care. <laughs> it's what he said that counts. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. The famous three days and three nights. Jonah is not a prediction of the New Testament. It's simply a nice way of saying that this guy definitely was buried in the sea. The Lord's word continues, whether Jonah lives or not, but the Lord still has work to do on with Jonah. Jonah still has his lesson to learn because it seems that these Gentiles of the sea were able to understand 
the importance of the word more than the prophet himself. Jonah should be retitled the book of continuing education for the prophet. Remedial education for prophets. Remedial prophecy. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.